Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Freedom of Ideas. Doing a little pre-introduction introduction today, just based on the nature of the subject matter of what we're going to be discussing today, what we actually started discussing last week, and what we will continue to discuss in the weeks to come. And I'll say, first of all, as I'm sure many of you who listen to a lot of podcasts can tell, I tend to script out my episodes Fairly carefully. I, I would call it a, let's call it a detailed outline uh, that I try to follow. And I know that's not, you know, I know the thing in podcasting today is that it's all supposed to be conversational and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That said, if you really want to uh, sit down for the experience of what happens when you just turn on a microphone and I start talking about Hegel without any particular uh, direction or structure, you know, I, it's just not something you're going to enjoy. It's not something I'm going to enjoy having to try and edit. I mean, my God. But setting all that aside, I didn't really script out this because it just felt strange to me to do so. So I didn't. So please forgive me if. This is a little more rambling even than usual. But what we're going to be talking about in this episode and in episodes to come, we're going to be talking about racism. We're going to be talking about prejudice. We're going to be talking about bigotry. We are going to be talking about imperialism, genocide, slavery, and uh, a, a number of processes by which Europeans attempted essentially to wipe out numerous entire cultures. So as I start to talk about that, there are a couple things I felt that I really wanted to be very clear on before we began. First of all, as I've said in past shows, you know, uh, I am a straight white male. So I recognize that as I'm telling stories about imperialism and about slavery, that, well, in a very important way, these are my stories or the stories of my people, but they're not my trauma. Not they're not my trauma, and and by trauma I mean a trauma that is not an historical trauma. It is a trauma that's very much alive today, and the extent to which these are my stories, well, they're my stories insofar as I'm a descendant of the people who committed a lot of these acts. I'm a descendant of people who profited from these acts, uh, and of course, I'm someone who, by dint of who I am, continues to experience benefits because these acts were committed. So first, wanting to, you know, of course, uh, recognize that and make sure that all of you understand I'm going into this with a full recognition of that fact. Uh, another thing to say, uh, of course, <laughs> as I always want to be, but in, in this, uh, certainly feel an, an, an even greater push in this uh, subject matter, of course, I want to be accurate. But I also don't want to tell stories that are not mine to tell. And, you know, I, I think this is, I think, a really enlightening thing that's a part of our of our conversation as a society right now is what stories are mine to tell? What stories are yours? How do we how do we share these stories without, you know, to use the term that we use, how do I share these stories without appropriating pieces of them that are not mine? The answer is I don't exactly know. I, I'm pretty sure I have a, a, a clear guide on how to do that. I want to talk about history. I want to talk about ideas. I certainly do not want to represent perspectives, particularly perspectives of people who experienced the trauma of these events. I don't want to talk about those experiences as though they are my own, as though they somehow belong to me, because, of course, they absolutely do not. I also, you know, of course, you know, part and parcel of all this, I, I, to be perfectly frank, I, I want to speak with 
as much sensitivity as I'm able to, knowing that when you talk about pain, when you talk about trauma that is very much alive and well, uh, if that phrase makes any sense to use, a, a trauma that is very much alive in our society today, alive in our uh, American society, alive in North American society, alive in most of the societies of the world, whenever you talk about these things, it's going to cause pain. There's no, there's no way around that. It's going to cause hurt. If we take these ideas seriously at all, we can't talk about them. I, I don't believe we should be able to talk about them without feeling some degree of, some degree of hurt, some degree of the echo of that, that pain that was experienced. That, of course, then leads me to, I, I want to speak with respect about these ideas, about these occurrences, about the people that these things happen to, so that whatever hurt it causes to speak about them, because we know that it will, it's, it's not, it, 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 it can't be done without there being some pain involved. So if it must cause pain, then uh, let's, let's have this conversation with respect so that we can think about these issues and, and so that doing this is worth it for the kinds of uh, truths that hopefully we can share, hopefully we can arrive at in this conversation together. And I guess the last thing to say is that the entire reason I'm, I'm going down this road, uh, and this was actually part of, if folks remember the, our introduction to the season, there was my, I said I had a little epiphany, and I realized that I'd kind of been missing a, a pretty central piece of the puzzle of what I wanted to talk about. Well, the reason I had missed that piece in no small part is because typically when you talk about philosophy, you, you get to close yourself in a, a nice little library, a drawing room, a study. You get to put your feet up. You get to, 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 to wear some nice comfortable clothes and sit in a nice plush chair. And, and, and you get this kind of ease and leisure that comes with these ideas that we're all going to sit back and maybe smoke a pipe and, and drink some brandy and, and talk about these ideas. And, and wouldn't it be pleasant and wouldn't it be refined? Well, the cost of that kind of attitude, and that, I mean, that's how philosophy is taught, that's how philosophy is thought of, and of course, there's something just fantastic about being able to close ourselves off from the, the difficult realities of the world and say, oh, let's just, let's just think, let's just play with these ideas, let's just, let's just enjoy this, and let's just sort of regale in this unique faculty of the human mind to be able to explore these, these puzzles, even if they're just puzzles that the mind creates for itself, it's still, it's just so much fun. It's so enjoyable to do that. That's why I love philosophy. It's, it's escapism like fiction could never possibly be. And yet I also believe it tells us something very real and very true about the world. But with all that having been said, I don't know how to talk about the philosophers we're talking about right now. I don't know how to talk about the intellectual tradition that we want to talk about right now without being honest and without looking very carefully at the, the very real, uh, the very destructive, the very hurtful flip side of the, this history, that while all of this nice sort of drawing room thinking and philosophizing was going on, there of course were, the entire history of, of Europe is premised on the tremendous pain and the tremendous damage that Europe has caused all over the world as its influence spread, as its ideas spread, uh, to the point that, as I think we'll see when we move forward, we can directly tie the spread of this way of thinking 
with all of this trauma, all of this hurt, all of this destructiveness that we think of, particularly when we think of colonialism and imperialism. But let's, you know, be clear on what we mean when we talk about colonialism and imperialism, that within those, we are talking about genocide. We are talking about the modern history of slavery. We are talking about the displacement of people. We are talking about some of the greatest evils in the history of our, of our species. And that's saying something, right? So that's, this is my little premise. Uh, and you know, I, I invite anyone to think what they will uh, about this. Um, certainly as you listen, I am very, very, uh, interested to hear your thoughts. I, I always am, you, you know that I hope, but on this more than, than usually, particularly particularly if I'm talking about an aspect of history and an aspect of, of experience that, um, that shall we say resonates very differently, uh, with you than it will with me based on who you are versus who I am. Believe me when I tell you, I want to do the best that I can with this and doing the best that I can with this to me means being all ears, uh, being very willing to, uh, very interested in listening to your feedback, your responses. How is this working? What responses are you having to this? Uh, and just, you know, whatever thoughts you, you care to hit me with, of course, I am very, very interested to hear them. And I think that's all uh, that I have to say by way of my little introduction. So we can dig into the meat of this episode as we continue talking to Mill but, you know, since we're here on this little, uh, our, our little pre-show moment together, I'll just say again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you for your interest. It means the world to me. And I certainly hope that what we've cooked up here in this episode and the next series of episodes to come, I, I hope it lives up to the standards that this show represents. And I hope to, that it lives up to what you're hoping for as a listener. So thank you again. And well, we'll be right back to you after the intro. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to a freedom of ideas been so long since we've spoken, since of course this is the beginning of the show and, and nothing could have come before the beginning of the show. So hey, boy, it's it's great to speak with you folks again. So today we are going to continue with our foundation series in which we begin the process of exploring social and the social and political aspects of the philosophy of freedom. Today we're going to continue with our friend John Stuart Mill. Now, as you may recall, over the last couple of weeks, we started with Mill's most basic formulation of freedom, spent two episodes talking about one paragraph in his book. And I should actually say we spent uh, two episodes talking about, spent two episodes thus far talking about that one paragraph, because we're not done with the paragraph yet. Um, and of course, of course, I, I do have a goal of speeding up this process generally, but perhaps not this week or next or for a little while to come. The reason we are spending so much time on this, as I have uh, expressed in the past, this paragraph represents a thesis statement of a very European vision of freedom, and it seems to me like we can really dive into it and begin to see where some of these presumptions work and where some of them don't. 
Now, for once, I am not going to go back and re-encapsulate what we talked about over the past couple episodes because, well, they're, they're still there. You can listen to them. And I, I think they're all pretty straightforward. What I want to do today is dive right into the rest of this quote, uh, since, as I say, we haven't quite finished looking closely at this entire quote. We haven't heard the entire quote yet. Mill does have a couple more things to say uh, in addition to what we've talked about so far. So for better or worse, let's dive in. Quote, It is perhaps hardly necessary to say this doctrine is meant to apply only to human beings in the maturity of their faculties. We are not speaking of children or of young persons below the age at which law may fix as that of manhood or womanhood. Unquote. And, okay, well, fair enough, right? No reasonable conception of freedom is going to be absolute. In fact, whether it's clearly defined in our conversations or not, we regard this time that we spend nurturing children into more mature and developed subjects, that's essential to this process, right? That isn't just like, well, we need to wait until they grow up. Part of that whole process, as we talked about in the last episodes, of needing to ground someone in a worldview, needing to ground someone in a set of expectations and values and standards, well, that's that's how this process happens. So this is how we build in, uh, to refer again to our, our last episodes, this is how we build in that that third point in our ability to, to triangulate and navigate this these conundrums of freedom. We recognize reason as a capacity which must be developed, and it's not inherent from birth. We do not expect a toddler to make truly rational choices, you know, choices that factor in the broader priorities of society and future planning, and, and even sometimes uh, what we would think of as relatively immediate consequences. That's not what we expect of a toddler or a younger child. Therefore, we neither grant them the privilege or the responsibility of fully developed freedom. And I think we can agree with Mill on this point and, and you know, sort of move right along. Looks like he's got just a little bit more to say to us here. So, quote, For that same reason, we may leave out of consideration those backward states of society in which the race itself may be considered as in its nonage. Unquote. And here we are. And if the stuffiness of the language and the obscurity of the term nonage, which means essentially immaturity, if, if those are obscuring this issue for us at all, well, let's be clear. We've reached the point in this sort of thesis statement on the nature of freedom and responsibility where we are being told how these principles apply differently to different races, to different peoples, because different races and different peoples have different levels of maturity. So, you know, needless to say, I imagine Mill writing this from his desk at the British East India Trading Company and feeling like every aspect of his life was, was really lining up quite nicely, right? That there's a nice intellectual cohesiveness to, to the entire picture of his existence. But there is a bit more to this quote, and I will say nothing really better, just more specific. So we might as well get the details out, you know, now that we're kind of already d diving into this. So again, quote, For the same reason we may leave out of consideration these backward states in society in which the race itself may be considered as in its nonage. The early difficulties 
in the way of spontaneous progress are so great that there is seldom any choice of means for overcoming them, and a ruler full of the spirit of improvement is warranted in the use of expedients that will attain an end perhaps otherwise unattainable. Despotism is a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarians, provided the end be their improvement and the means justified by actually affecting that end. Liberty as a principle has no application to any state of things anterior to the time when mankind has become capable of being improved by free and equal discussion. Unquote. Okay, so there's a lot here, and we're going to start with the obvious stuff. Now, perhaps so obvious that it needn't be said, but I will very gladly err on the side of clarity here. Of course, the notion that race somehow equates to the quality or maturity of a person or of a society and its citizens, uh, and further that certain races are more or less able to cultivate acceptable societies, this is patently false, right? I mean, can we all agree on that? Can we all make that very clear? Set aside, for now, the extent to which this presumption is deeply rooted in the European rational tradition. There, there is no, you know, for us, and again, this is, this is not a one-off idea on Mill's part, although he doesn't dwell on this at all. In his tradition, these thoughts are deeply, deeply rooted. But for us, I hope we can agree, there is no reasonable to dis discussion, no reasonable debate to be had here, regardless of uh, you know, how often, quote-unquote, reason has ostensibly driven white people to want to explore the validity of these ideas, meaning the validity, fundamentally, of racism and bigotry. But let's analyze what exactly is at work here. For Mill, this is a matter of maturity, of development. A society is not yet sufficiently advanced to support certain institutions that Mill associates with successful governments and, 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 and civilizations. And of course, I do understand that he said the, said the word race, and we are going to spend a very big chunk of time on that. But for now, I think it's important to make a, a really pretty minor distinction in the grand scheme of things, but it, I think it's a distinction that will help us understand Mill's perspective, at least to some extent. Mill is thinking about all this again through the lens of maturity, but maturity or lack of maturity as it applies to entire societies. And of course, in this case, he's principally talking about non-white societies, but when he talks about race, he's not doing so with quite the same loaded uh, associations that we would be in using that term today. Again, that is a minor distinction, and it is by no means meant to say that there's not something very dangerous in what we just heard in Mill here, and that there's not something that, I say dangerous as though that's in the abstract. This idea caused a lot of pain. This idea caused a lot of suffering. This idea caused quite a bit of death in the world uh, that never needed to happen. And yet it was this notion of some kind of, uh, you know, racial maturity, racial quality, societal maturity, societal quality. It was these notions that drove so many of those processes. But 
you know, again, we're going to, we're going to come back to that in, in a little bit. So all of this comes back once again, as we continue to harp on, it comes back to this notion of reason. For Mill, and for most of the folks in this, you know, white, largely male tradition of European thought, there was an assumption about not only the inherent rationality of humankind, but a conviction that society as a whole was steadily becoming more rational year upon year, generation upon generation, as if reason was this kind of beacon that, uh, that the European people particularly uh, was sort of as a culture was kind of being drawn to that beacon of reason. Again, generation after generation. And if you look at the history, you know, giving Mill his due here, and again, I don't want to be too, uh, I don't want to let too much of this slide, but just to think from Mill's perspective, if you look at the history of England from, say, 800, the year 800 to the year 1800, I could see why he might feel that there was this sort of historical trend toward societal improvement, because in that millennium of time, there had been, there had been re very real and demonstrable improvement, at least in terms of England and in much of the rest of Europe. So, you know, give or take some fits and starts, everything that we associate with the European rational traditions, that's all growing in England in this stretch of time. Again, the very broad and, and somewhat messy stretch of time between 800 and 1800. Science is, is growing and building on itself. Government is becoming uh, more representative, more interesting, more intricate, uh, more fair in many ways. The economy, education, scholarship, all of these aspects of what we call civil society, in that span of time, as Mill looks back on history, these are all becoming more rational, more egalitarian. By almost any measure, if you compare England in 800 to England in 1800, these systems are undergoing massive, quantifiable progress. They are not perfect. They never get perfect, but they are progressing. Now, Mill's view of history is one in which England and, you know, Europe generally have sort of emerged from the chaos and the despotism and the violence and the instability of the, the quote-unquote Dark Ages and the Middle Ages into the maturity of, a, of more modern states. And they've done so roughly in time with this parallel development in the use of the faculty of reason by European intellectuals. I don't think it is at all out of line to assume that Mill honestly correlated the cultivation of rationality, the exact kind of rationality he'd grown up in, by the way, that he viewed the cultivation of that rationality as a sort of leading indicator of an overall society's maturity and success. So if I'm Mill, sitting comfortably in London, observing this history, I can see why I might think that my cultural tradition was on the right track, that real progress was being made. It helps, of course, if I just go ahead and ignore the barbarism that my society is inflicting on other, ostensibly less mature societies, if I only look at what's happened to my society, to my culture, it all seems to be working quite well. And we need to remember this much about Mill's worldview, about his view of reason and how it develops. For Mill, reason 
perhaps something, uh, you might even say akin to nearly perfect reason, that's something that human society aspires to, and it gets closer to, generation after generation after generation, as I said. So for Mill, there's a very real process by which a society will move from a kind of anarchic, violent wildness, i.e. immaturity, into a more rational, settled, mature society. For Mill, this is about a process of society-wide improvement toward a particular way of thinking and acting. Again, this vaunted European style of reason and rationality that every society, as far as Mills was concerned, that every society either was or at least should be striving to incorporate and emulate. Now, let's be very clear. There are something like 53 different problems with this, okay? This is not, in my view, obviously, this is not a tenable worldview, but I think it's important that we understand exactly where Mill is coming from here so that we understand more exactly what the problem is. And the problem that did the most damage, in my humble opinion, is that if you think that your society, whoever you are, whatever society you're in, if you think that your society is at the apex of a kind of one-size-fits-all process of maturation, then of course you're going to be very dismissive of any other kind of society that is not like yours. You are going to immediately assume that any difference between you and that other society, between your society and that other society, or between you and the citizens in that society, that those differences are the result of your being at different stages in that maturation process. You know, meaning, of course, that from Mill's point of view, that other society ha has got to reach the level that you already have. They're, they're lower down on that, on that sort of maturation process. They're uh, adolescents, they're toddlers, whereas we are, you know, maybe we're in our mid-20s or not, not as, a, as mature as we could be in Shelby, but, you know, certainly we've, we've attained something that that younger society has not. Again, not my point of view, Mill's point of view. So to see the way the world, the way Mill sees the world, you have to assume that any society that does not act like yours whether that society is what we would call an indigenous or a native society, or whether it's a long-standing settled civilization, if that society and the people in it do not act and think and express their ideas the way you do, if they do not use reason the way you do, then they are somewhere below you on that maturity scale. You could not simply be different, right? You could not just have different traditions. You were somewhere on a quality scale of progress and maturity that was pinned directly to the way you reason, or from the perspective of a European, the way you failed to use this particular kind of reason if you are not someone, you know, well, exactly like a European, right? Um, so again, the key features of this is for Mill, uh, he sees his own historical progress, again, from that, you know, that arbitrary millennium between 800 and 1800. He sees the use of reason increasing. He sees this, the structures of civil society improving. 
The mistake he makes, obviously, though, is to turn around and say that everybody that's not behaving exactly the way he's behaving is somewhere beneath him on that scale of maturity, somewhere uh, wallowing in their knownage, wallowing in their immaturity, still uh, not yet as mature, still not yet as rational as Mill had become. Because, of course, there's only one path. There's only one right way to do it. Now, if it seems somehow, and I don't think it probably does, but just covering our bases, if it seems somehow like I'm being unfair to Mill in all of this, meaning if it seems unjust that I'm, I'm sort of laying the entire shame of imperialism at his feet, and let's remind ourselves again, uh, the history of imperialism and colonialism is, is one of centuries-long global murder, rape, genocide, and cultural erasure, the scars of which, and, and, and I shouldn't say the scars, the active trauma of which is still very much with us today in numerous, many, many uh, societies and communities and civilizations across the globe. So if it seems unfair that I'm laying all of that on John Stuart Mill, well, of course, yes, that is absolutely unfair. This is not all somehow John Stuart Mill's fault. Colonialism and imperialism predate Mill by centuries. The process started in our vaunted, you know, and I say our here, I'm going to say our a lot, and, and uh, you know, I think I've been pretty forthright about this. I'm going to say our in the sense of our European tradition. Our European tradition says that we have this sort of vaunted age of exploration. It was this wonderful time and all these exciting things were happening and our society was coming into bloom. Well, it was that vaunted age of exploration that also kicked off the age of uh, colonialism, imperialism, genocide, slavery, and cultural pillaging, among many other things. To be clear, my point in, in going back through all this is that certainly none of this was started because of a philosophical essay, either from Mill or from anyone else who predated him. This process was a process that was initiated and pushed forward by greed, by a hunger for glory, a hunger for power. You know, we can't say that Mill or even the rational tradition that Mill represents somehow invented all of this, created all of this. Uh, and, and, and I don't by any means wish to say that, y yes, 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 if we just read our philosophers closely enough, we'll understand exactly why imperialism happened. That's not the case. That's far too simplistic. But what we can lay at Mill's feet is that he was just one of a number of thinkers whose work served as a means of justifying the horrors of imperialism by recasting all of it as some sort of noble mission uh, to run around helping these quote unquote and and boy oh boy not my thinking representing someone else someone else's thinking here by that that imperialism was somehow part and parcel of a global mission to help these quote unquote childlike people rise up out of the muck and the mire of their civilizational immaturity. Despite the fact that none of those people seemed in any way interested in being elevated in exactly that way, nonetheless, this was the story that this rational tradition allowed us to begin to tell, to say, oh, no, 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 yes, maybe some damage is being done in colonialism and imperialism, but remember, there's this scale of maturity, right? There's this single road up the mountain, and we are, by 
going in and forcing our worldview on these folks, we are going to help them move up that road. We're going to help them move up toward the mountaintop, which thus far, we alone, we wonderful white Europeans, we alone have glimpsed, and we're just going to very graciously help everybody else along after us. So that was the viewpoint. Again, not mine, but it, it was the viewpoint to, uh, to a number of these folks. Now, to quickly summarize the way most what we would call latter stage imperial colonies were established. So what is, what is the mechanism by which imperialism actually works? It, particularly in the latter stages, around the time, about the century predating Mill up to the early part of the 20th century, actually, um, typically the way this would happen, and of course there was already a, a huge colonial presence in the world, but as it continued to expand, what would happen was you typically start with a, a pretty smallish kind of band of, of brigand pirate style adventurers, you know, a few shipfuls of folks, Columbus style. They would go exploring, quote unquote, exploring in a new territory, often as, as kind of a speculative venture. Uh, without government or necessarily even a large company behind them to support the effort at that stage. Once it was clear that they'd found treasure, uh, resources in whatever form, whether that form was gold or other precious metals or minerals or spices or slaves, uh, <laughs> whatever it happened to be, whatever the resource happened to be, once they'd found a viable resource to exploit in the new area, they would then turn around and petition the home government for support and aid, um, basically saying, look, we're here, we have this resource, we have a huge economic boon just waiting to happen, but now we need your support to really fully exploit this resource. This aid from the home government would come in the form of military and bureaucratic infrastructure to essentially establish a stable outpost, uh, really an official colony in which the commerce of pillage could, at that point in time, be conducted in, you know, relative peace, or at least as much peace as the colonizers themselves were willing to grant. Thus, something like a government, complete with a military force, would be established in this newly colonized area, either to operate independently in, a, in what had been a previously more or less undeveloped area, or to essentially, if, if this was in a settled area, an area where there were already towns or cities or what have you, where there was already a functioning government, it would essentially begin to operate to control that existing government, uh, kind of like pulling, pulling puppet strings uh, to control that, that society through its existing government. Now, where Mill fits in in all of this, aside from the fact that he's an employee, again, of the British East India Company, but where his thinking fits into all of this is that it was his, his way of thinking that was used to justify, uh, whether the making the justification to kings and queens or to parliaments and to peoples, it was Mill's way of thinking that it was used to justify the fact that European governments should not only invest in imperialism, they should send their militaries off to secure these footholds created by these adventure capitalists and make sure that there could be no meaningful resistance to the process. And if you have to sell that idea to something like a parliament or even to a general population, it really helps to be able to say that, no, 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 we are not just going in to pillage and plunder and profit. We are going in 
because we are so mature. And these people that are living there now, they're not very mature. They are in their knownage. So in this whole process, we're going to be helping to lift them up, to start to live the way that we live. We are going to civilize them with our despotism, to use the phrase that, that Mill himself more or less used. So part of our effort now, if we can step back from the, the bloody edges of this history and for at least a moment or two nestle ourselves safely back in, in Mill's drawing room in London, the effort that we have to undergo here is to, to understand exactly how a mind that perceived freedom so powerfully, that perceived freedom so eloquently, could fail to see the profound, you know, world-changing mistake that he, was in, that he was making in endorsing these kinds of activities. Now, yes, Mill was born into a society that fostered these values, right? This, this was his upbringing. He wasn't a rogue who just kind of invented this way of thinking. This was all in perfect conformity to the values that he, that he possessed. Then again, he was also born into a society that was deeply sexist, and yet, and this is one of the absolute best things about John Stuart Mill, I don't say that sarcastically, Yet, despite being born into a deeply sexist society, Mill was able to perceive that there was no rational justification whatsoever for inequality between the sexes. And, and he wrote about that uh, within, uh, in cooperation with his wife. He wrote about that quite extensively, and it's, it's beautiful, fantastic work. So how did Mill make this mistake? How did he understand freedom so clearly in so many ways and yet not understand the horrible offense to human freedom and to human dignity and to human life that was being committed in this process? How did, in fact, how did the entire rationalist tradition of Europe make this mistake? This will not be the only question we consider as we move forward in this series, but uh, I don't know, it, it will be prominent among them because I, I feel like it's, it's so very important, right? The worst mistakes we make are always in our, uh, our quote-unquote blind spots, and the, things that with the worst mistakes we make are the mistakes we fail to see at all. Mill seems to have failed to see this mistake entirely uh, as he was making it, and yet it is so obviously runs afoul of everything else he seemed to be thinking about. So how could that be? Well, I don't know that we'll ever answer that question, but we will certainly keep coming back to it. But for the time being, and knowing that we are going to be coming back to this question time and time again, we're going to leave all this here as a reminder that the history of colonialism and imperialism in its many forms, is a history of barbarism committed in the name of civilization. Which, you know, I assume that most of you understand this, uh, most of you have heard this kind of story before, but I, I, I do further think that the line of inquiry that we're just starting to see emerging here is what comes from, ex from asking exactly how our European notions of reason have so influenced countless aspects of society and government, and as we can see, history in, in, in a way that seems to be so counter to the principles and the ideas that that rational tradition ostensibly was pushing forward. Now let's take a moment and ground this conversation in what we've talked about so far in, in this series. 
First, we talked about all how all the systems of civil society are essentially small r rational systems. So that includes justice systems, legal systems, education systems, really, really all of it. All of these are systems that run on, again, small r rationality. And further, we discussed that as we are using reason as a kind of currency in these systems, the level of rationality that we are presumed to have by other people is profoundly important. Now, we talked about mental health issues in particular, but we can see this same dynamic pertaining to many aspects of identity. When the overall system of society regards you, for whatever reason, as being less capable of reason than everyone else, you lose tremendous power in that system. You become increasingly incapable of having your own perspective heard and acted upon. Now let's relate this back to uh, our conversation we've been having thus far here. I would contend that colonialism and imperialism, these are just other aspects of these same rational systems that we've been talking about when we talk about legal systems, justice systems, and all the rest of it. These processes reflect the same biases and mistakes. Again, presuming less rationality from someone else based on some aspect of their identity that, by the way, doesn't necessarily have anything to do whatsoever with their capacity of rationality. In most cases, it typically does not. But that bias, that chauvinism of my way of, my way of reasoning, my way of thinking, my way of presenting myself over yours, here we see it playing itself out on really a global scale. And now, in imperialism, judgment about who is or is not rational, whose rational perspective we will or will not honor as being equal to our own, these judgments are now being made about entire peoples, from indigenous cultures to settled civilizations to uh, everyone in between. But the theme, the basic mechanisms here, they're exactly the same. Here, here again, what we've done is we, we've dropped this iodine onto the slide to see the many ways that our notions of reason have permeated so much else in our thinking. What is most significant to me here, if we continue to push this question of how this mistake gets made, if we look at this one short passage that Mill has written here, Mill perfectly exemplifies a problem that results from, once again, the way in which we commingle these ideas of reason and freedom. Now, in the vast majority of cases, I'm going to be the first in line to buy into the idea that you can't have a robust uh, notion of freedom without both a, a robust notion of responsibility and a robust notion of reason to go along with it to help make sense of it. But the problem here is not that Mill equates the capacity for reason with the capacity for freedom. It's that he leads us to the assumption that some whole peoples may or may not have that rational capacity, you know, or at least they may not have it yet. They may not be mature enough yet. And he does that because he equates different forms of reasoning as being lesser forms of reasoning, and whatever his intent in this. And I'll remind you again that Mill's day job is, you know, it's the economic arm of colonialism imperialism, the British East India Company. But whatever his intent here, 
he is at the very least, he's perfectly expressing one of the fundamental ideas of his age and also one of the fundamental mistakes of his age. The intellectual justification, not the motivation. Again, the motivation was, was greed and power and all the rest of that stuff. But the justification after the fact that made colonialism and imperialism sound acceptable to the peoples and to the parliaments of the European nations that were actually supporting imperialism. But for now, as we contend with this, let's say we have two questions in front of us, so that for me, that arise from thinking about these issues. We're going to spend the waning minutes of our time here today on one of those questions. We're going to save the other for next week. The first question is, what are the origins and the impacts of what in Mill's time and in up to the first half of the 20th century was called, quote unquote, race thinking, which really it's the manner of thinking that Mill seems here, at least in part, to be pointing to. It was very, very popular at the time of his writing, and essentially it equates race with either the current state of a people's development or perhaps their actual entire potential for their development. So what is the impact of that way of thinking, not just on the European mind that, uh, that was sort of uniquely diseased by this idea, but then as a consequence of that, what was its impact on the world as a whole? We will start on this not thinking that we are going to create a comprehensive sort of perfect answer, but we will start on this next time, even if we only scratch the surface. The second question that we will, abri that we will address in the time we have left today, even if we don't do it to anyone's satisfaction, we're gonna, this is what we're going to spend the remainder of our time on. The other question is, what are we supposed to do with our buddy Mill now that we've seen these troubling assumptions that are at work uh, sort of beneath the surface in his thinking. Now, I want to be very clear when we talk about Mill. I believe there is very real value in his work. There's very real value in working through his thoughts, giving him the benefit of the doubt as we wrestle with his ideas. But we have to do this while bearing in mind that what must be the most threatening thing about Mill and about many other progressive thinkers just like him, and he very much was what we would describe as a progressive, a, a liberal thinker in his time. For Mill, notions of liberty and freedom were not only not opposed to, but were inextricably entwined with notions of justifiable colonialism. Mill regarded imperialism as the quote-unquote necessary despotism, to use his term, the necessary despotism that would serve to help develop these cultures the, that were these peoples that were currently in their nonage to the point of maturity and rationality so that they would be on the same level, thankfully the same level as Mill and his English and European peers were. So what do we do? What do we do with Mill now? Okay, option one, if we are sufficiently disgusted, right? Should, should we just trash him? Just boom, gone, goodbye. No more mill, you know, trash, goodbye. Uh, mill, and by the way, I should say the many, many others, probably most every other thinker from this era to some extent or another, almost all of whom worked from these same presumptions. Do we just take them down off the shelves? Start from scratch? 
you know, I mean, if I, I have books piled up all over the place because I don't have enough shelf space. If I did this, boy, boom, I'm, 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 I've got, I could put up little porcelain statues and stuff. I'd suddenly have all this room. I'd have a, you know, I'd, a bunch of stuff to take out to the trash, but fine. Just get rid of it. That's option number one. And of course, that's a lot of history to lose, but, you know, we don't keep spoiled food, right? So option one, there we go. Alternately, you could just sort of, you know, read through, keep going with this work, but just, you know, kind of pretend the bad stuff isn't there. So we, we just go through with a, a black marker, you know, like, we, like as if we're in the CIA, we cross out the parts of the book that we, that we recognize as being thoroughly objectionable. And we otherwise proceed just without even taking notice of those ideas. We just don't mention them again. You know, go further. A a anything in the, in the book that we, that so much as makes us nervous, right? That so much as makes us think, oh, Jesus, that kind of part of, is that connected to that other idea that, that we really uh, could not stomach? Well, we, we just get rid of all of it. We, we simply redact all of it. And we use all only the part of his thinking, only the part of his worldview that we know is really, actually about freedom. The kind of freedom that we know today is worth pursuing. And the rest we're just going to kind of ignore. We'll just pretend it wasn't there. So we get the, the best of both worlds, the best of mill. We just take out all the, the stuff we really cannot stomach. Now, honestly, I, I, I assume most of you are anticipating this, but uh, to be clear, I'm not comfortable with either one of these approaches. Let's look at them both in turn. If you're on the side of, uh, we got to trash it. You know, we, we see this view of history. We see that it is just utterly repulsive. We see the damage that it caused. And the damage was profound, world historically profound on countless peoples. So, boom, just trash it. Let's get rid of it. Let's rid ourselves of these poisoned ways of thinking and start from scratch. Okay, so let's take this view. First of all, it would mean giving up quite a bit. Let's be clear about that. Yeah, and, and again, let's be clear as well. Mill's essay on liberty is not some screed, you know. It, there are carefully considered and important ideas that I believe we can learn from, that we can benefit from. And, and if you don't buy that, if you say, you know what, it's, it's an apple from a poison tree. Even if that apple doesn't directly hurt us, we know what the source is. We cannot tolerate that. Fine. Okay. So if you don't buy, buy this notion of the value of other this stuff, well, consider what happens if we consciously ban Mill from any further consideration. Even if we do that, he will still be there. He's going to be lurking at the foundation of everything we think about, everything we talk about. As people raised in European traditions, many, many of our presumptions are rooted in the works of people like Mill. So to turn away from them entirely is really, at the very least, it's to deny ourselves insight into ourselves, insight into the societies that we both create and are created by. So if you believe that Mill is all bad, if you believe that we must eradicate all of his work from our thinking, well, if that's how you come down, I got to say, what I need to recommend you do, the first step, that if you want to just rid yourself of everything to do with John Stuart Mill, the first thing you need to do is you got to read every word the man wrote. You got to read it very, very carefully 
just so you can begin to understand how thoroughly he has already influenced all of us, whether we've read him or not. Okay, so if we are not as pleased with that outcome, maybe we just go through the essay again with our thick black marker, we redact the awfulness, we keep what's fresh, and we disappear what's rotten. And I guess with this, I, I honestly, I just don't think it's that simple. I don't think it's, it, it's going to be that easy for us to proceed. Because remember, in our last few episodes, we've discussed trying to, again, triangulate our thinking about freedom and responsibility. We said that if I claim you are infringing on my freedom, and you claim that I am infringing on yours, often our only real option is to look into that third point of orientation, our triangulation to, to navigate our, our way of thinking. In this case, and in most every case, that third point that we need to navigate by is the society in which our thoughts are cultivated, the society in which our thoughts, our worldview, our attitudes, our assumptions, all of it that that is is both created and which that worldview then serves to create. The only way to get the perspective we need to understand our competing claims to freedom and rightness is to look at the totality of the society around us. Whether we're in ancient Greece or present-day Buffalo, New York, whether our community is one of librarians or hair metal bands, to really understand these dynamics, we need to understand the soil we are rooted in. And if we buy that, and I do, if not, you know, as a destination, you know, if not as like this is not the complete picture of our description of freedom, at least this is one of the important road signs that's going to help point us forward. So if we buy this as a, as a workable concept, then we're forced to recognize that the same Mill who spoke with real eloquence on the nature of human liberty was also the Mill who thought it was not only justifiable, but actively, imperatively right to impose our will against the will of others in the hope of cultivating freedom. That sentiment was not only a mirror of the society in which and because of which Mill created those ideas. Those sentiments were strands in the fabric of that society. We can't simply rip out those strands. The entire tapestry is far too tightly interwoven. We have to see how each strand connects to all the others, how it links them all together, even if Every other strand, every other idea, every other motivation, every sentiment, even if all the rest of it, aside from this one idea, is entirely pristine, we still need to see how it all ties together with this one idea that we know is problematic. We cannot consider the ideas in absence of each other. We have to consider them as that tapestry all woven together. And further, we need to understand how those strands continue to weave through that same fabric of our thinking today, down to our most basic and instinctive assumptions about freedom and, frankly, every other aspect of mind and civil society. So what do we do? Well, Let's remember our Fitzgerald, shall we? Quote, the test of a first-rate intelligence 
is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Unquote. What I'm saying in bringing up this quote is that we need to take what I believe is the hardest possible path forward given our options. We need to accept, on the one hand, that Mill quite seriously wanted to cultivate a notion of freedom that would enliven the thinking of his time. He wanted to clarify freedom such that it would create freedom and that it would enrich the actual experience of living in liberty. And while we accept that idea, while we accept his intentions, and while we accept his very real achievements in that regard, we must also keep an eye on the seemingly unthinkable mistake that he made in the process. Not realizing he was doing so, I believe, not realizing he was doing so, Mill built a combined notion of freedom and its perfect opposite, liberty of thought and enslavement by force. And so it becomes our responsibility to do the hard, uncomfortable, sad, sometimes repellent work of keeping both of those opposed but inextricably enmeshed ideas in mind at the same time as we continue this work. Now, next time, we're going to continue with Mill, but we're also going to dive further into this idea of quote-unquote race thinking, and, and by that I should say racism thinking, racist thinking, uh, this idea that uh, you can use someone's race to understand the quality of their character, the maturity of their society, uh, however else have you. We need to understand those that repellent set of ideas if we're going to understand the historical context for all the rest of this and the way it continues very much to influence us to this day. And I do not say this, you know, I want to say this, I'm not reviewing these ideas and talking about any of this with the intention of letting Mill off the hook. I, I hope that's clear. But as we look deeper, we'll see that it was very much in vogue in his time to talk very explicitly in intellectual circles about the importance of considering race when considering the worth of peoples. And as much as I would prefer to simply set that entire history aside, Understanding any of this history, understanding any of these ideas, understanding who and what we are today requires understanding how all of this bile could be mistaken by so many people for a reason. So, I thank you, as always, most humbly and most sincerely, I thank you for listening. As I said in the pre-introduction of the show, I hope very much to hear from you. I want to know your perspective on what I'm talking about here, and I certainly want to know what I'm getting wrong so I can cut out getting it wrong and start getting it right. As always, you can reach me at A Freedom of Ideas on Twitter. You can reach me at words at afreedomofideas.com. You can check out the website. You can do all the rest of that good stuff. I certainly hope you'll join us next time. I'm looking forward to it.